Hi, I'm Daniela Stockflet Menis. Welcome to my podcast because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect, and relate because everyone has a story. For today's episode, I have a guest that fascinated me with her TED Talk back in 2016. I had to reach out and meet her. We became friends shortly after. Galia Wessler. Galia didn't have good grades in university and came close to not graduating. But hard work, hustling, and negotiation techniques put her where she is today. A successful entrepreneur, founder and CEO of two companies, and an accomplished public speaker. I love how poised Galia is. A cool, beautiful, and strong woman that works in the tech world. When we went for walks, Galia will say, Daniela, I am good at what I do. With power and confidence, but also with humility. That statement left an impression on me. How often we women unapologetically and with confidence announce I am good at what I do. I am good at what I do. Exactly. Enjoy her story. Welcome, Galia, to my podcast. I'm super excited that you're here. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. How we got to know each other, because I think it's a funny story. <laughs> yes, it is. Our first date was at the beautiful art gallery in Vancouver. Yes. I heard of your TED Talk. I watched the TED Talk. I was so connected with you. I was like, oh my God, I love how she moves her arms, how she speaks. Everything is so beautiful about her. <laughs> I decided to send you a message through LinkedIn. And usually when people ask me to connect in LinkedIn, if I don't know them, I just don't accept. But you did accept. And after you accepted, I complimented you and said, oh my God, you're amazing. <laughs> then you responded really friendly. And you said, hey, we should go for coffee. And I was like, oh my God. This is a date. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's it's interesting, yeah, because I do get a lot of messages on LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, you strike me as an extremely professional, beautiful woman as you are. <laughs> <laughs> that was, and I felt it was very nice to hear from you. And then we met at the art gallery. I know. And then we became friends. We went out. Yes. You came to our house. Our kids always remember you. Yes. Yes. You are not only TED speaker, yes. you are also a Toastmaster. Yes, absolutely. And I was a Toastmaster too. And also you are a professional hustler, I hear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so tell us, tell us your story about how you became a professional hustler. I guess I was always a hustler. I didn't realize I was a hustler as a little girl because I was a very, very good girl. You can ask my mom and dad and they will tell you that I gave them absolutely no trouble. I did not rebel <laughs> when I did my high school years, but I have to say that I was a very late bloomer for everything, like the way I developed in my life and who I am. Everything was very late for me. I've always had a different point of view, a different perspective on life. I was never the one sort of like to follow big groups of people. If you were to look back on your high school years, I remember back in the day, we would divide ourselves like to the people that are very outspoken, that are very popular, let's say, to the ones that are more shy. Mm -hmm. And I belong to the ones that are more shy. And so for me, I was always an observer. I was always a researcher. 
I never spoke before I was spoken to. And then everything changed, <laughs> basically, as I bloomed into my 20s and 30s. And that was when you were in university or when? Yes, that's right. I grew up in Israel. I was born in Canada, but I grew up in Israel. Okay. As a person who grows up in Israel, whether you are a boy or a girl, it's mandatory at the age of 18 to participate in the military. And of course, people can decide not to. It's, it's their choice, but most people do uh, do their service for two to three years. So I did my service, and I think really for me the turning point was the army. Uh -huh. That's when I discovered getting outside of my shyness and being liked by the boys, which was <laughs> absolutely not an option for me being in high school. I never thought that I was smart or beautiful or anything special. Wow. In the army years, that's where I discovered that, yeah, maybe I, maybe I am. I mean, I did discover one thing for sure, is that I'm funny. Uh-huh. That's true. <laughs> at least to myself. <laughs> I laugh at my own job. <laughs> <laughs> and for those people that cannot see you, I'm just going to say you have beautiful dark hair and beautiful, strong green eyes. It's blue, Daniela. It's blue. How, how long ago did you see me? It's blue okay. eyes. <laughs> and you have blue, beautiful. I thought they were green. <laughs> Okay, I said yeah, that again. Blue. You have beautiful dark hair and amazing blue eyes, which it looks sometimes green. <laughs> and you are so gorgeous. So I can't believe it that you, you know, it happens. It happens. I, I had the same feeling too, that you, you, you never thought that you were beautiful until, until later. But sometimes I guess it's good. It makes us different people and stronger for sure. Yeah, I do believe that people that are having a hard time as they grow up, With regards to studies and their self-esteem, families, sometimes we have a hard time. I do believe that the ones that are a bit of an underdog, as they say, those are the ones that are tend to succeed and excel even more. And it's because you don't take things for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, so if somebody were to tell me, I, I don't like to talk about beauty too much because beauty is on the eye of the beholder. But if somebody was to tell me, you know, oh, I can't believe you're successful. You've done a TED Talk or how did you do it? And this and that. I would say, well, nothing is being taken for granted. I actually worked for eight months about on this TED Talk and they've shredded my script into pieces 150 times. Yeah. So nothing is for granted. And they say, oh, your hair is so beautiful. I would say, oh, man, try and like brush my hair. <laughs> <laughs> But I think as you are a late bloomer and you tend to appreciate your hard work, your wisdom and, and all your experiences, and of course, your beauty, you need to be able to love yourself and accept yourself the way you are. The later it comes to you in life, I, I felt, always felt way more mature than people that were my classmates, for example. Why do you think that uh, the military helped you to be so confident? First of all, talking about beauty, I, I hated my dark hair. The blue eyes were okay, I guess think it was anything special. And I decided that I wanted to change my hair, as most teenage people do. So I highlighted my hair. Can you imagine? Dark, our dark eyebrows. So let's think about Marilyn Monroe for a second. I would highlight my hair and highlight my hair and highlight my hair up until the point that I just decided to bleach it. <laughs> and uh, I'd look completely different. But you know, in Israel, as you know, also coming from a warm country, the weather is absolutely fantastic. And so you're always tan. And so if you're tan and you have light blue eyes and if, if you have blonde hair or dark, it doesn't matter, right? You will always look good because you're tan. <laughs> I look different and I felt different. I chose to be in a remote place, posted in, in Gaza Strip in a very dangerous zone. And because I was away from home for such a long time, felt that like I had my freedom. Being such a good girl, I'm so connected to my parents and 
to my brothers and to my family that serving with girls. And then we had a bunch of infantry uh, soldiers surrounding us and helping us do our job. I felt like I was reliving my high school years, only that it was kind of like a 007. I mean, I'm totally exaggerating, right? <laughs> you know, that's right. But, but it was kind of like a 007. Ooh, we have a mission. Ooh, we have to save Israel. Ooh, we have to like you know, monitor the border. And we are all 18. We're all beautiful. <laughs> and yeah, and there was, a, you know, different love affairs happening. Of course, not on the duty. Wow. After, after duty. That sounds yeah. super interesting. Yeah. And how many years were you there? It was two years in total. It's two years for girls and three mm-hmm. years for boys. But what I was going to say is that I really discovered true friendships there. And that's something that you do when you're in such a remote area and you're basically um, kind of you know, protecting your country with your fellow army colleagues. And you're doing like, an important job together and you can't go anywhere because you're all kind of stuck there. So we, we made it our home. It was in the middle of nowhere and we made it our homes. Like we would work, we would do our job. We basically monitor the border. But it was great, you know, because for me to have a group of people that I belong to and to do an important job, it was just a very, very exotic experience for me. I don't believe in army and I don't believe in war. But of course, if there will be war peace, we won't need armies, you know, in the perfect world. <laughs> yes. That's true. And so what happened after the army? Yeah, so then as, as many Israelis go and travel either in Southeast Asia uh-huh. or in South America. As you know this, Daniela, my beloved South America, an amazing, amazing place. So I, I went to South America first for six months. And then I ended up going to Southeast Asia. And then in between, I decided to enroll in university. I've enrolled, let's see, three times. And on my, on my third attempt, I finally got accepted mm-hmm. to a small university next to, to Tel Aviv. And the reason why it took me three times plus two, you have to do an SAT in Israel to be accepted to university, is because uh, to study software engineering, which is what I studied, is extremely, extremely difficult to get in. I dislike competitions because of my own personal beliefs that I should be competing. I should just be accepted <laughs> because I do believe that everybody deserves a fair chance. Yes. Not everybody studies the same way. Mm-hmm. And each person should have the opportunity to study and to go to higher education and to pursue their education, and their career. And the problem is that these systems are very much, you know, one size fits all. I started my professional hustling career even at the beginning of trying to get into those universities because they, they wouldn't give me a chance. Mm-hmm. My SAT score was so low. It's kind of embarrassing to say that, but when I did it twice, I did two times SATs and I tried to get accepted to three uh, universities. And then the last one gave me a chance. They put me on probation and they said, okay, if you pass the first year of engineering school, will allow you to proceed. And then within the four years, you will get a software engineering degree. But were you hustling to get accepted? Yeah, absolutely. The hustling begins even at the research point. It's not really a hustling, but a person when they're mm-hmm. 20 years old, I say 20 because in Israel, you only release from the army when you're 20 or 21. It's very difficult for young people to really know what they want to study. And they need to have role models, kind of like I always call it like the Beyonce effect. To know that, for example, I want to be a dancer because of Beyonce. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a lawyer. You know why? No. <laughs> because I watched L.A. Law. <laughs> I watched L.A. Law in high school. You know, for those that are my age, they know that L.A. Law was like the best. It was kind of like suits today, right? Yes. They dress so beautifully and they were like, oh, like very smart. And I just love the women, how they were so empowered. And that's why I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But you need to have some sort of a role model. 
I always say in different uh, keynotes that I'm giving in different different places that women and we should talk to young women and we should tell them engineering it's so amazing being in tech is so amazing you should be a developer you should be a quality assurance engineer you should be like a business analyst do all these things in technology because technology is fascinating mm-hmm. later on it will open so many doors for you i didn't i had no idea that that's what i was going to study my role model is my dad my mom and my dad and my dad told me Okay, Galia, so you studied in high school. I actually studied sociology, psychology. So I'm like, oh, maybe I should be a psychologist. And then I also studied law. I went like, to a special program in the University of Tel Aviv, and I studied law first year. And then I also represented the, the school, my high school, being a dancer. I was a professional dancer. So I had all these different avenues that I wanted to be an actress. You know, after the experience in the army, being such a funny girl, I was like, oh, for sure I need to be in entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> But then my dad came to me and he said, okay, so you finished the army, you're going to do your SATs. I think that you should learn software engineering because it's going to open so many doors for you in life. And I didn't quite understand what he meant by that because a girl that comes from psychology, law, dancing background Mm -hmm. doesn't really care much about technology, where it could take her. And also, unfortunately for girls in this world, they don't have enough role models in technology. Mm -hmm. They don't have enough role models in math or in physics or in research. There's not enough women doing this. So if there's not enough women doing this, and really cool women, right? Women that you can look up to, then those girls, unfortunately, they're taking on other types of subjects. Not unfortunately, because every subject is viable and, and important for society, but there needs to be a better balance. If you think about women in powerful positions, women that are leading countries, women that are leading non-for-profit organizations, those are the women that most most of the times they, they do take more of the math and the physics and the programming and you know the research. And if they were to take these topics, they will be able to then insert themselves into leadership positions to be able to make a greater impact on this world. Mm-hmm. And also create freedom for themselves. So I don't know about the other areas, but what I do know for myself is that I didn't realize that back when I was 20. But what my dad told me is if you study technology and if you go into this into this topic, so many doors will open for you. And he was right. Because when you study software engineering or computer science, you can then become a tester, a quality assurance tester. You can become a programmer. You can become a business analyst. You can become a project manager, a product manager, a CEO, a director. Like There's so many things that you can do. And not only that, when you are dealing with technology and you have different technology projects, the world is your oyster. You can do anything that you want. You're actually building stuff and tools for people. If you look at the pandemic that we're facing with right now, if it wasn't for technology and all the advancements that have happened in the past a year, one year, right? If you look at it, like this, all these yeah. months that we've been stuck in our homes, if it wasn't for technology, we weren't be able to communicate. Yes. Even what we're doing now, recording through technology. Exactly. exactly. And keeping in touch. To be a user is one thing, but to build these type of systems, it's fascinating from different aspects, from a mm-hmm. designer, from project manager, from developer, right? And again, I had no idea back when I was 20 what my dad was talking about. But my, my sweet dad and my mom, but let's talk about my dad for a second. My dad has been in, in business for many, many years and he studied, he has a PhD, but he also studied business and he took different study in computers as well. 
And even though he was doing mostly sales and business development, and he was CEO and president of different companies, also tech companies, he has this amazing wealth of knowledge. So by the time I reached uh, the age of 23, when I finally was able to get into university, I was absolutely no knowledge whatsoever, no, no inclination to computers. I was really bad in math and, and physics and all those topics. That must have been hard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, it's very, very difficult. I came from a very, I, I had a very big disadvantage because I was not as strong as the other students. And I had to find ways to compensate for that. And the only ways to compensate for that was my state of mind, which is to be a survivor. I'm going to survive these four years. <laughs> I finally got accepted to this university and I have to make this work. That's the only way to, to succeed in such a difficult thing, such as completing a four-year engineering degree when you have absolutely no knowledge. I just had to make it work by hustling my way through it. I remember you telling me this a part a while ago. This is interesting. Come on, continue. Yes. As I said about girls and boys, the ratio is completely out of whack. We started off 40 students in our class and we ended up graduating just 10. I was the only girl who graduated. To begin with, mm -hmm. there was just a few girls in the class. And slowly, slowly, people dis people are disappearing because they're just failing. The professors were really giving us a hard time. So you can imagine myself sitting in class, completely <laughs> staring at the professor. It's all guys around me, and I'm very motivated, but I'm completely lost. Like, I don't know what to do. But I did have a very good skill that no one else had. I had the ability to focus. So I, I don't bail. As a person, I don't bail. Like, uh -huh. if we say we're going to do something, I'm going to do it. Where other other people in my class, they would smoke their pot, they would drink their alcohol before, during, and after, and they would party, and they would just rely, those mostly guys, they would just rely on their uh, inclination and their abilities to understand complex math and physics, mm -hmm. because naturally they were very good at it. But they were actually um, not as hard workers as I was, because I would show up every morning Even though I didn't understand, I was totally focused. I also have the ability to write really, really fast. Because when I studied law in university when I was in high school, they train you to listen to the professor and summarize at the same time. And also because I have memory issues, I, I can't remember uh, large amounts of text. I train myself how to summarize text into headlines and then go back to my headlines and then based on that, associate to a memory of what that text means. So I knew how to analyze text as well. Wow. So I took all these skills and I would show up every day. And, you know, this is like, oh, it was horrible. You know, algorithms, physics, linear algebra, all those things that you're just, just thinking about it today. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I did it. But anyways, I would show up every day and I would summarize. And then I realized that those other guys, they just wanted to smoke their pot and party basically, right? And And show up really late and continue sleeping in. So as I saw these behaviors, I offered a lot of them to basically buy my notes. So I did like a barter. I said to them, okay, well, I'll give you my notes if you help me with the exercises. And then if you help me prepare for the exam. Mm -hmm. So that's how I did it. So I started hustling. Right? I started like negotiating with them. <laughs> <laughs> But I had at least two or three guys that then we became friends that really helped me. They really supported me. And also back in the day, I used to be married once upon a time to a guy. He was extremely smart. The guy got accepted to Weizmann's Weizmann Institution in Israel. And he's like way advanced. And he studied PhD in biology, this and that. 
he had no connection to programming and he studied programming like within a week so that he can help me with my exercises. So I also had like a personal help at home Uh and he would help me with statistics and programming and physics. And I just basically reiterated the material again and again and again. And I always did my homework and I always showed up. So it was just a combination of really hard work and negotiation. And then when the exam would come along, you know, those dreadful exams, yes. you get one chance. And in, in those, that university, you had to pass a minimum by 60. Oh. So the maximum is 100. You had to pass by 60. Below 60, you fail. If you fail twice, they kick you out of university. Like you no longer can do that degree. Oh, I guess maybe you can apply again. I was really dreading those exams. I would say most of the years I failed each and every exam. Oh. Once. Yeah. First time I would fail. I would get like 29, you know, it, and it's really embarrassing because I was born in Canada, right? And in Israel, they use a identification card. It's not really a SIN number. You know, SIN obviously in Canada, you're not supposed to tell anyone, but in Israel, it's called your identification ID. Everybody knows it. They would put a note in the hallway. Yes. And instead of writing the name, they would write the ID number and the score. Now, being born in Canada, other people are born in Israel, right? They start with 003 or 03. I think that's their ID number. Mine started with 011 Uh because I'm Canadian, right? So you see the whole list, everybody knows that 011 is Galia. Mm -hmm. Galia is the lowest (laughs) score. It was so embarrassing. And in addition to that, my ex, emphasize on on the ex, he said to me at one point, Towards the end of the first year, he said, Galia, I really think you're not good at it. I really think you should just give up. Wow. You know, maybe you should go study some marketing or something else. <laughs> and I also had another beloved professor, I'm saying beloved in quotation, that I asked him a question and he misunderstood me. And then I asked him again in the hallway and he shouted at me, you are so <laughs> stupid. I don't know how you're going to finish this degree. And I, I was shocked. My God, like you're a professor. An older dude uh, in charge of all these students. And this is how you speak to a student? Like, I was shocked. I was serious. I just, I could not talk. I get you. I had this teacher from math. He also said that to me in front of all my classmates. Pretty bad. And so just to roll back, I think it was a year ago now that I was in Israel. And I met my, my classmates from the university days. And I met with my friend, Iran. And Iran says to me, my God, Galia, I had no idea whether or not you will be able to finish this degree. And look at you now. I can't believe this. <laughs> you were like the worst in the class. And I said, yes, but I, I persevered. And then slowly, slowly, as I, as I went through those years, first year, second year, third year, fourth year, slowly as I failed those exams, I, I went to the negotiation table with my professors. And I came in to the room with the exam that I failed. I took that exam and I solved it again with my ex or with my friends. And I showed it to a professor and I said, you know, <laughs> I actually meant to write this and that. <laughs> so really, we should talk about the we should talk about the mark here because I'm not sure 55 actually represents what I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it worked out a few times, but most of the times it was just throw me off the stairs. And they would say, just like you can't, if you want, you can take the exam again. And I always took the second exam and I always, yes. always I passed, but you know, by little, like I passed by 65 or like, even if I got 70, it was like, whoa, I, re- I reached 70. This is amazing. <laughs> Congratulations. University, you passed. <laughs> yes, I passed within the four years while working. Congratulations. <laughs> I always fascinated by that story because it's hard. 
what you did, it was true perseverance and hard work. Yes, yes, it is. But also it's believing in the goal and believing that you're able to do this. I'll tell you a tiny story. First year is very critical for, for students in, in this particular program of software engineering. It's the hardest year, and that's how the university decides whether or not you can continue. And just before the end of the first year, uh, my ex did look at me the night before the exam, and he said to me, like, you, you will not be able to pass this. I don't see you completing this degree. I really think you should just save your money and just go study something else. And at that moment in time, I mean, I, I used to love that man so, so much. And I do believe he loved me as well. And I believed him, you know, sometimes somebody that you look up to, like a partner, you do believe what they're telling you about yourself. But at that moment in time, I closed my eyes and I don't know how and why. And I do tell this story every now and again, I had this vision I'm somewhere else, like the years pass by, I'm somewhere else, I'm surrounded by glass windows, and I know that I'd made it. Now, there's no glass windows in Israel. Like back then, it was all like small buildings around that area. There's no like high rises or anything. But yet I saw myself in that image. And so I opened my eyes and I looked straight into my ex's eyes and I told him, never tell me to give up. Hmm. Never tell me to give up or go and study something else because I believe that I will finish this degree. And I will finish this degree within the four years and I will be able to get a job and I will make so much money, not two times than what you will ever make in your life, but three or four times or five times than what you will ever make in your life. And I will be successful. You will see. And he looked at me and he kind of giggled. He's like, there, there, little girl. And so five years go by. I'm no longer married to him. And I moved to Vancouver. So in Victoria, then I moved, I, I, we moved together, actually, him and I to Victoria. We ended up getting a divorce. He went off to Israel. And I moved from Victoria to Vancouver, to the big city. And I just, and by the way, I finished my degree, right? Within the four years. And at that point in time, I landed a really big contract with Yellow Pages. And I got my first apartment in Yelltown in a high rise mm. overlooking the harbor. And I, and I sat there I was looking at my surroundings and all of a sudden I saw like glass windows all around me because you're living in a high rise. And then I realized like that was the moment that I saw in my vision. Wow. And I have no idea <laughs> how. Fascinating. So you work for the Yellow Pages doing projects? Yeah. So the way it worked was and uh, we moved to Canada together because I was born in Canada, so I have Canadian citizenship. I immediately got a job as actually a quality assurance engineer. I never did, I finished my degree, but I never did programming. I was always very bad at programming, but I did quality assurance. And then I became project manager, a senior project manager, and then split up with my ex and decided to move from Victoria to the bigger city. And the best way to move to a big city is if you get a job. So then I applied to be a consultant and they told me if you incorporate the company, we'll pay you more. So I said, no problem. I incorporated the company and within three weeks, I was in Vancouver. And so that's how, you know, I actually started my first company, which is to galvanize. And ever since then, like doing different jobs as a, as a consultant, and then I switched for, to a full-time job. And I always say that, you know, as the path of being an entrepreneur, you kind of have to start by working for a company and you can climb the corporate ladder. And then you can see if, if it's better for you to sort of create your own venture and essentially work for yourself and do all the good work that you could do in for employers to do it for yourself for the maximum profit and the maximum freedom and creativity. Mm -hmm. You give that advice all the time to entrepreneurs? I do, yeah. I do tell them that they should start off their career by obviously proceeding with their education 
whether it's formal education or courses or this and that, being an expert at their field, working for companies, understanding the standards, contributing to companies. I mean, some people, the corporate ladder is really good for them. But for some people like myself, where I really like my freedom, I, I really like to be able to impact and also have very straight up communication. I don't like the whole politics games, which unfortunately, it's a lot of it is happening in the corporate world. I didn't really like those struggles. You know, I kind of like, let me do my job. I can do it the best way possible. We should all be basically as equal as possible. We shouldn't be playing any political games in order to do a good job. And also another motivation for me was I wanted to be kind of against technologies. Like back in the day for Yellow Pages, we were doing like different search engines. You know, if you remember Trader, um, Trader.com, uh, AutoTrader, all these different websites that Yellow Pages ended up buying. This is back 13, 14 years ago. Um, but I really wanted to progress with like mobile sites. And then I wanted to do mobile apps. And today I do blockchain. And, you know, for me, the curiosity as a technologist is just have to keep up with the trends. And if you're not in it, and if you're not right there building it with the team, then what are you doing? You're just working for a company and you just do like maybe one side of the technology, but it's very blah. I really think it's like in a, an approach for the world. Like, are you really hungry? to live in this world and to try and impact and to try and experience as much as possible? Are you like more, you know, kind of like sitting on the side and having your routine and doing your nine to five? And then, you know, you do your hobbies and you go back to your family and that's it. Some, some people are like that, but I was never like that. I was all of a sudden single and I had all this free time in my hand and I just moved to Canada and I made new friends and I wanted to explore technologies. And I worked so hard for that degree. That I remember saying it to my friends, oh, I'm going to utilize that degree <laughs> in every way, shape possible. And so how do you start the hustle after the university then? Yeah, exactly. So I was going to mention this to you that when you struggle so much, how are you able to convey uh, messages to your professors that professors never liked me or to your teammates and my teammates never really respected me? And it's not to say it's their fault. I mean, I didn't respect myself. I didn't think that I would actually complete this degree, but I proved myself again, day in and day out that I can do it. And so when you learn these negotiation techniques, it's the best, actually, that was the best school for me to become a really good project manager because, you know, project managers are the people that are in the center of a project and they have to basically negotiate the time, the scope and the resources. It's a triangle, right? And every time one angle is bigger, then the rest becomes, they have to become bigger again. And so when a CEO comes to you and they say, oh, I want this project to be 20 times bigger, but they're not giving you more budget for resources, then that will never work. And you're always in this compromising position. Being a project manager is a very difficult position, actually, because you're always in the middle, middle between the ones that are building it and the ones that are wanting it built. And so becoming a really good project manager was because of these hustling negotiation skills and then becoming a product manager, which is a person that also deals with the scope, like what is it that we're going to build? That's also, that's, I, I find it to be even harder because you're not only dealing with the technicalities of how many people do I have, how much budget do I have, how much time do I have? You're also dealing with what needs to be built in addition to these constraints that I've talked about. So if I didn't have the skills to be extremely motivated, to motivate others, to be positive, to be able to mm -hmm. make magic 
happens. I just I just have like a magic dust in my pocket and I sprinkle <laughs> I sprinkle the dust. Today I sprinkled quite a lot of dust. <laughs> <laughs> And then people sneeze and then they open their eyes and everything's good. good. Galia, you started your own companies as well as you were working for different companies. Yeah, that's right. So you were having different jobs. Yeah, that's right. You have to get the experience in the workplace by getting the right education and the certification. But then it's always in practice. So your people tell me, oh, I should study for a master's. Oh, I should start a PhD. And I said, well, you know, sure, if you like theory. That's great, but I'm not a theory person and I'm actually not a university person at all. Although I would like to complete a master's someday if I get accepted. Mm -hmm. But I do like practicality. Like why, why are you studying if it's not to put it in practicum? Yeah. The best way to do that is if you get a job, you should actually exercise negotiation in small things and then in larger things. Because we do negotiate all the time in our life and it's not just good for our career. It's also good for, for personal interactions. And so if you take on really difficult jobs like being a project manager or being a product manager and then later on becoming senior executive or even being an entrepreneur, I think having these hustling skills and negotiation skills it really is key. My advice would be to get a job, you know, if you're at the beginning of your career and do that job the best way possible. But still, I mean, even if you're not 100% in that job, Whatever the realm of expertise and, and activities that you need to do for that job, always try to negotiate the best conditions for you. So I'll give you an example. When I used to work for companies, every three months or every six months, they would do an evaluation. I think three months probation and then six months evaluation. I would do the best possible job that I can and then sit in front of my boss and let my boss give me the you know four out of five rating. Like I really got good ratings. And then when they would finish, I would say, great, now I want more money. I would research in advance how much money can I get based on my education, based on my skills, based on the period of time. And then I would always start like twice more and then bring it down to the, the halfway, which is basically what I wanted. But you do have to be prepared to have these negotiations and, and come with the facts. It's like anything. For example, if you are a product manager and the CEO tells you that they want to build Orange app and you know that Orange apps are not really user-friendly, Then you bring the research to show them, you know, 90% of apps that are orange end up failing in the Apple guideline. I'm just inventing something, right? <laughs> and then they see the fact and they say, oh, okay, it's not Gary's opinion that orange is not good. It's actually statistically proven mm -hmm. that orange is not good. But I do think that as a person, if you learn those, and there's many, many books that you can read about negotiations, you can progress in your personal life and in your business life. And then when you do reach a point when you are your own boss and now you have to bring the deals and you have to negotiate with your team about their salaries and about their expectations, that's where you just bring it to the next level. Great. You are having your own business or you are working with somebody? I now actually incorporated my third company. My second company, Plazas Technologies, focuses on blockchain type enterprise solutions. Got investment back in the day from Canadian investors. This is like four years ago. Started off by building a specific blockchain protocol, kind of placing a layer of Facebook groups. And then we moved on to creating uh, other types of enterprise solutions in blockchain. And then during the pandemic, uh, that's when we decided to create a third company called Go Health Technologies. We uh, focus on a blockchain solution for allowing people to go through testing, for example, COVID testing or HIV testing, where anonymity is highly important. Nobody needs to know that, that you have these uh, symptoms and that you're sick. 
you could potentially uh, self-test yourself and then based on that, take a certain action. And so we developed this with a particular blockchain technology method. It's called self-sovereign identity, which is a very good uh, use case for blockchain of how you're able to keep someone's identity verified on the blockchain. So you can verify someone's credentials. For example, I'm Canadian, you know, I have a, um, I've got my Canadian health insurance and then I went through a specific uh, self-testing. And then so you keep their credentials uh, in an anonymous manner, but you're still verifying them. So the equivalent for that would be for any one of us to be able to go through a COVID test where, you know, the government would know that we went through that test. They would know that we are positive or negative. And based on that, if we're negative, for example, we can tap our phone and enter the, the gate to board our flight, for example. The same thing will happen with vaccines. We're now working on collaboration with WHO, but there is a smart vaccine program coming our way. And I'm really hoping that we're Mm -hmm. able to contribute. Excellent. Sounds good. Well, you told me this a while ago and I was quite impressed. You're always into a cool project for sure. (laughs) I also, uh, surprisingly enough, they're now featuring me at top 25 blockchain CEOs. Uh It's an American magazine. It's called Technology Innovators and it's going to come out, I think, in the next couple of days. So... (laughs) You can see my face <laughs> in about six pages. Well, I actually, I dragged some of my teammates because it was so embarrassing. They wanted all these pictures of me and being on the cover and then the middle section and this and that, kind of like Sports Illustrated for the for the blockchain geeks. So I dragged some of my teammates and their pictures are there as well. Great. Excellent. Can't wait to see that. And of course, we're going to put a photo on Instagram of you so everybody gets to see your beautiful blue eyes and your dark hair. <laughs> Thank you. Galia, thank you so much for spending the time. I know how busy you are and you get all these interviews all the time. I really value that. And you have given us a lot of information for us to, sh- to learn and to think about in sharing your hustle techniques. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, my dear. And thank you so much for the audience for listening. I wish you all to stay healthy and well. I am Daniela Stockfleet-Menis. You were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Follow this story and many others on Instagram at behas.podcast. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto. Hold up. 